Uh, we got GM Elshon in the house, uh, as well as David here for, for Dojo Talks, a special edition of Dojo Talks training. Um, and uh, yeah, we have uh, a couple of fun topics you guys can see what we've got in store. Um, we're gonna do a little bit differently. Normally we have like a time limit for each topic, but we're just gonna kind of flow naturally. And once we're done talking about one thing, we'll just move on to the, uh, to the next. Uh, Elshon, how are you doing? You ready to talk some some chess? I would like to say hello to all of your audience, and uh, it's good to be here with you guys. Yeah, I'm ready. Ready to chat yet? All right. Well, let's let's do it. Well, the first thing actually I want to mention is that you just have a new book out called uh, Sherlock's Method. I have it here. Oh, nice. Yeah, show it. Awesome. And uh, actually, well, like before the stream, we were just saying you like. Nowadays, you consider yourself more of like a chess coach and a and a chess author more than like a professional player. Uh, so, let's just start with like what was you know your idea for for the book? I know you wrote it with with uh, uh, Sabina, and um, yeah, tell us what what it's about. Yeah, so the idea for the book actually came to me the very first uh, time I visited, and the last and the first and last time I visited London in two thousand and thirteen. So I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, and I was walking to 221 Baker Street, the, uh, that, uh, the actual address that uh, actually they turned it into a museum. And then it was like 10, 15 minutes walk, and it was a very nice sunny day in London. And it was a very nice walk, and I walked to, uh, I don't know what this is called, but it belongs to Malcolm Pine, the, the, the chess shop, basically the, the biggest one in London. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that, how cool would it be that, you know, using a character like Sherlock Holmes teaching chess? So the idea came to me in that walk. And for years, I was just thinking about it. How could it be? Then I, I shared it last, last year with Sabina, and she seemed to be interested because I tend to think about uh, concepts more in chess than, you know, engine analysis. I do a lot of engine analysis because of the nature of my work, of course. But, you know, the concepts and the way to think about uh, ideas. And once the theory ends or the simple candidate moves run out, how to think, how to come up with them. So then I started writing, and uh, the way I would describe it is that this book wouldn't have started if it weren't for me, and you couldn't finish if it wasn't for Sabina, because she would keep track, you know, in terms of the, uh, she would she would analyze uh, very thoroughly and decide which positions to keep, because we had, the, we, had all, we have 300, uh, we have 42, one, 270 plus 42, 312 positions in the book, mm -hmm. and uh, but we looked over 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 a thousand positions to decide to pick, and uh, Sabina did a fantastic job on that part. To like, I had all of these, and she had some, and we would go back and forth, and uh, we if it was because I just keep going and going, and uh, this is kind of my tendency, you know. And at some point, you just have to stop and move to the next chapter, or sometimes you have to add more. So. She did a great job on that, helping me. And uh, I think we did a we did a good work on that part together. So that's how it it, it all the layout is. So there are three parts in the book, part one, part two, and we call them parts. And each one starts with a conversation between most most mostly Watson and Holmes, and the narrator is of course Watson. And uh, the story is that Sherlock is help Sherlock is helping Watson to prepare for a tournament. And the book is about how to prepare for a tournament. There's no theme. There's not. It's about I'm about to play a tournament in three weeks. And that's mm -hmm. what's happening in Watson. And then here it is. There's no theme. There's nothing. I am getting you ready for these trainings to get ready for, to play a tournament. It's interesting. So it's it's essentially like a, a book of exercise. So you mentioned the three sections. So the chapters are called simple positions, uh, end games, yeah. and then complex decisions. Yes. And and so these yeah. are like. Uh, are these like calculation exercises or like a mix of decision making? It mix up everything. You, you, you mix up everything. It can be sometimes as simple as finding a two move forks, or it can be as as complex as a two phases prophylactics. Right. Uh, but the, the thing is that you see the position and you try to be as practical as possible. And in our answers also, and what we said a lot in in the uh, we we, we emphasize and through the book again and again, and we tell people who, who are interested in the book. I definitely read the answers. There's more than just moves there. Mm-hmm. You just have like, yeah, specially annotated answers. No, I agree. I think that's one of the most important parts of the whole process, just seeing the ideas that you missed and having them explained to you. 
I believe if you are looking for just a, a training book, you are better off if you just want to solve some positions and improve your calculation, you are better off really just doing some on chess.com or some other tactics or whatever. But if you're looking for a practical decision-making process and understanding that and see all the complexities back and forth, then this is where, where you want to, you know, use this. So um, I know people always ask this, so I'm just going to say it right off the bat. So the, the, it says the book is aimed for players between 1,700 and 2,300. Is that right? Yes. Okay, gotcha. So basically anyone who wants to prep for a tournament in this range gets this book, and then it's just like a great like training regimen. And do you recommend they finish it in like three, four weeks, or how should they pace it? Okay, well, I also imagine that these people will be consistently working on chess. If they are not professionals, obviously they cannot finish the book. Mm. So, so it's like a multiple... Three, four, yeah, so three, four weeks sounds right. Sounds about right. Um, as long as they are consistent every day, putting, putting some time into it. It's not a kind of book that you would read it today and you stop and go back and next week continue. That's not the kind of book. If it, I recommend someone who wants to study it for a month and be done with it. And then the way we say also in the book, once you see your mistakes and you write it down, we say that write down your thinking process. See if you have a mistake, compare and slip on it, go play your tournament, whatever, and come back in a month and compare and answer them again and compare. Yeah, okay. makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, actually, people are asking for a link in the book. Yeah, so silly. Let me, let me get that for you guys real quick. It's available on Thinkers Publishing, right? Yeah, and, and also if they want to write me, uh, I have few copies left. I can send the send a signed copy to them. Oh sure. How would how should people um, contact you for uh, that? If you can share my email address, you have my email address, I think. Yeah. That would be a bit. Uh, yeah. Sure thing. Let me uh, let me grab that real quick. Uh, in the meantime, David, maybe you can ask Elshon about what he would do if he was in yeah. the Ultimate Sensei. I really wanted to ask you this, Elshon. I mean, I don't know if you would ever want to be like a guest. Uh, you know, be one of the coaches on our Ultimate Sensei show because we'll be having, you know, more and more seasons of it with new coaches and new students and so forth. But I briefly described the idea to you. You've got six to eight weeks to get a student ready for a tournament. You can give them a couple lessons a week and you can give them stuff to work on in between, you know. Um, do you have any, like, immediate thoughts as to what you would have your student do if you were trying, if you were in one of these competitions? What I would do, yeah. So the first two sessions is that we have to figure out what their weaknesses and strengths are. Mm -hmm. Then the second two sessions, if, let's say if I have three weeks. So I would say two, two sessions per week. I mean, okay. sounds reasonable, right? I mean, normally if you have a competition coming up, you have to do more, but let's say two sessions. Okay. Uh, the next two sessions, we'll work on that. I'll give them positions, work on those facts, and I'll give them a, a, a list of heuristics based on what they need to kind of they try to assimilate that kind of thinking process into their game so they overcome their weaknesses and reinforce their strength strength uh last week i'll give them some training in the end game and definitely making sure that they have a repertoire a fixed repertoire for the entire event regardless of what result they have mm -hmm. so that's what i will do probably and the sort of like training puzzles you would give them in the in the middle week uh would those be mostly directed towards their weaknesses or um mostly probably yeah okay but also you know once a person has a tournament in three weeks you don't want to hammer them down and say oh wait a second you're so bad at this that right. would take the, the self-confidence so okay. i'll i'll try to like go maybe 65 35 so 65 on the weaknesses 35 on their strength and kind of try to boost their self-confidence i see i see so give them some like some some easy pitches as well that are like Letting them I show. I call it easy, but something they're good at, for example. Yeah. You can see complex tactics. I give them some complex tactics. Oh, you see, you're good at this. You got, you've got to enter positions like this. Make decisions to enter sharp positions, or they can make easy decisions quite fast. So you have to go for so uh, easy, how to say, simple lines and uh, easy decision-making processes and simplify your thinking process. So you kind of t give them a guideline. Give uh, how, to, how to say guide them through the. Uh, path of and choosing what kind of positions they want to play because at the end of the day you cannot force feed them certain openings right they have to feel comfortable with those openings yeah so um, i just dropped the link for everyone in the chat where you can pick up uh elshan's book at thinkerspublishing.com i checked amazon i think it's on pre-order there um yeah december 8th is the date 
Right, December 8th. And uh, also for, for people watching this or listening to this later, you can contact Elshan at elshan.moradiabadi at gmail.com uh, if you want to reach him for a signed copy of the book. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about uh, training, actually. Um, so I guess as a bit of backstory, Elshan and I worked together a few years ago uh, when I was around uh, like 2350, 2360 range. And I had like two IM norms, really trying to get the third one, get like past 2400 feet. And uh, I hadn't worked with a coach for a while, but I, I hired Elshan um, for uh, some some training over the course, like a couple of months. And it was uh, it was great. It pushed me over 2400, got the IM title. So that, was, that was a big that was a big success for us. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that uh, as well. Um, I want to ask. Um, uh, for the the book, uh, you probably mentioned this, but I assume you want people to set these positions up over the board, right? Um, if they are that good that they can solve it in their head and without setting them up, that's fine. That will save them some time. But I would say put it on the board. Definitely do not move the pieces. I'm sure David says that to, to his students. You say you tell this to your students, do not move the pieces. And, mm -hmm. and use the amount of time and write down your thinking process. Do not assume, because sometimes you don't write it down and you assume, oh, I saw that. So you saw two moves and you think you saw the entire process. It's not that, it's not how it works. Write down everything comes to your mind and try to compare to the actual answer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan I of writing very, it down. I found very few students will do that very, like will really follow your directions on that kind of work. Uh, how many do I have? No, I'm saying I've found in my experience, very few students will really follow precisely those directions, like really like write everything down and then compare it carefully afterwards. Well, the problem with the book is that and nowadays, for example, when I train sometimes on, I don't want to promote anyone specifically, but for example, on leeches, it's easy to put notes and everything. Mm -hmm. So for them, my students, at least they do that. They put their, whatever lines come to, come to their mind and they put some notes there. So that's good, but or I think they can do it probably on chess.com as well. I don't know, but uh, don't they have to play out the variation? Yeah, but they only have one. They cannot just go through like they put one move and they, they stop there and think again. Whatever comes in their mind, they put it. Sometimes there are some stupid lines, but that's okay. It's obvious that whatever came to their mind, they they're putting it there, mm -hmm. and then they put they put some comments or lines or sidelines or whatever comes comes in their mind in one shot. I think for 15 minutes, this is whatever comes to my mind and this is my answer. Mm -hmm. I asked them to put it on uh, on Chesper's file, a PGN, and send it to me. Mm -hmm. So that works like that. The problem with the book is that it's, it's it's hard copy, so they have to put it somewhere, or I don't know, make it make a position on chess chess space, and then do it there. I would suggest to do that. Probably make it Chesper's file, make a PGN, whatever. I mean, you probably can do it on leeches, chess.com, chess space, whatever people have, and keep track. I do that for myself too. I do it for myself too. I do it on stream, and then I show them my papers. You know, so I'm like, do it. Do it. I'm... <laughs> I, I, I put it on chess space actually. I don't make. I don't put it on the paper. Uh, but I make the position on chess space, and whatever comes to my mind, I just put the comments there, save it, and that's it. Okay. Very yeah. cool. Um, well, yeah, maybe we can move on to our next uh, topic here, which is just to ask Elshan for some general training advice for different levels. Um, so Elshan, you've now uh, you mentioned you worked with a lot of players. Do you? Do you coach like full time nowadays, or, or how how much coaching are you doing? I mean, it depends on you know. It also has to do with the market. You know how much how much people will take lessons from you. But in terms of availability, I try to make myself as available as possible. Um, but yeah, I'm, I would say I'm I'm, I'm a full time coach, and uh, and um, but the one very interesting thing is that I worked with in the past year. I worked with, with players as low as eleven hundred. Mm -hmm. And as high as twenty six fifty. That's high. So that gives gave me a lot of perspective. Yeah. Can you mention the the higher rated player in I that can. range? That's fine. <laughs> Had to ask. <laughs> um, so yeah, of course, it's it's very very different to work at. Uh, I mean, the various levels. Do you do you find you have to adjust mentally? And what's the like? What's the hardest part about that? Yeah, that and also try to understand what's going on in their head. Right. 
Uh, and also, when I mentioned this this range, there's a gap. I haven't worked with GMs at 2500 range like my my rating mm -hmm. much. So I I actually missing what myself thinks this way because I see very sharp 2650s. I see 2450s, which I have better understanding of them, and I can show them something. But I haven't trained with players. Actually, I have with one actually recently, uh, but just maybe. Uh, we trained for a couple of weeks and that's it but mostly it was the other part of the range so um back to your question sorry what was that uh, well actually i'm curious so when you do work with like a like a 2650 someone who who's like a bit higher rated than you is it you're working with them on openings or you're giving them positions how is that how does that work well i mean i'm kind of old they would understand that for as a chess player so uh and we've probably seen things you know when i started playing chess it was Fritz two, and Fritz two um, was really not much of an engine, right, David? I think you agree with me, right? Yeah. And <laughs> so yeah. And I had my notebook, but not notebook the way they used to refer to, you know, laptops in the first first generations of laptops. I just had notebooks, written opening lines or analysis or everything. So uh, texts and understanding and candidate moves and uh, evaluation was big. So I think that's what I bring to the table for those players. Mm -hmm. A lot of experience on evaluation mm -hmm. and see the trend of the game. Unless there are some force line or some something very explosive that I can miss, engine can show or they're better understand, better uh, feeling for tactics or or dynamic could show. But other than that, if it's a, it's a degree of complexity of the position, I'm not being so proud of myself here saying that. Just a lot of experience and a, and a lot of studying, reading different books, and the way I was trained, that's what I bring to the table for them. That's what I have for them. And speaking of, I, I imagine you've worked with um, a lot of uh, coaches when you were growing up. Do you, who is... I, I was very blessed on, on, on that part. I mean, honestly, I didn't do enough as a player for the kind of training I received, I should say that. Were there uh, some people who were most influential in your uh, in your own training? It's you know what when you train with, okay, I put you, I give you five names and it's I just tell you and these people were not the, the person who really helped me a lot. I have to mention and give a lot of credit Sarhan Guliyev from Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. He uh, was my coach for uh, for two years. Brought me from twenty two hundred fifty to twenty five hundred level. Yeah, did a great job as as and uh, um, I I still sometimes talk to, I still sometimes talk to him and. I had I had this talk on world champions and I was talking about certain things and it's very interesting the kind of conversation I had with him like 20 like the 20 years ago we would sit and talk about and uh, and the way I see things I know a lot of positions a lot of games a lot of dates a lot of history and that's how I was trained I would ask his opinion I would say oh, this is yes or no or agree or disagree on, on certain things now I'm a GM at the time I wasn't but okay, apart from Goliath, I trained with Short, Korchnoi, Seshkovsky, wow. uh, Alex Anishok, <laughs> uh, uh, when I was at Texas Tech. Um, uh, I trained with uh, Trigubov, Andrei Sokolov. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all these names. You can say who can be more influential. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from Andy Vladimirov, who is an uh, endgame expert, and probably David knows that name. Less less known for maybe for the new generation, but one of the endgame experts out there. Very cool. What's that? Very cool. No, it's just that so many <laughs> so oh, many legends yeah, in I one sentence. Jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, as I said, I didn't do as much as my education. So. Well, I mean, you. No, I mean, I, I think you <laughs> became a really strong player. And um, well, let's let's get into the uh, advice. So w what do you generally see at like the lower end of the range, like uh, players rated 1000, 11, 1200? Like, do you notice any uh, typical mistakes they're doing like in their training or how, how they approach trying to uh, trying to improve? Um... Let me put it this way. Although I train players at that level, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in understanding what exactly they, their need is. What I figured out that works for me and my students at that level is that because they believe me a lot, they will follow my direction. And because they need to improve on everything, they will do it. 
-hmm. But it doesn't always work like that because some people want to kind of be more specific and I may have problem kind of uh, have, have a focus on what is the best uh, for them because I think that they have to improve on everything and some people want to be more specific about it. So it will be a challenge for me if I want to have a 1200 at that level. Mm. But once they leave things to me because they absolutely believe that what I want to do is that and that's a long term, it works. So I wouldn't consider myself the biggest expert on uh, 1200 level, 10 sure. to, uh, 1000 to, to 1200 level. But that's how it was. They have to just kind of focus on improving on every aspect and uh, equally push it in every every direction. And do you think they should be like focusing on one or two things at a time or working on everything? Kind Everything. of um, simultaneously. Credit simultaneously. That's what I believe. Oh, interesting. I specialize until uh, after sixteen hundred. Until sixteen hundred, uh, almost I would say my training is all about the same. Just you have to just add knowledge on certain areas. Right. Well, let's say no games, calculation, decision making, practical, time management just everything simple end games everything yeah well yeah. let's say we'll just we'll give you a guinea pig he's 1200 he's willing to do whatever you tell him for four hours a day just whatever you tell him like what would you have him do well first 1200 i first have to make sure that how much how fast he is so the first week he has to finish step one and step two the books the, the dutch books oh yeah those are yeah those are popular that that if they can finish it in, in a week time, that means they're fast learners. But then I can see how fast they can learn, how much info they can absorb, and in in how much time. So that, that's my measure. That's the first thing I'll ask them to do. Finish book one and two, and start three, and, and tell me where you start stumbling and making mistakes. That's what that would be. That gives me, then I look where exactly they start making mistakes, and then I start uh, laying out a, a curriculum for them. Okay. Good start. <laughs> yeah, maybe four hours is quite optimistic. It's they'll tell you four hours, and then it'll be like forty minutes. <laughs> oh, Come on, when I was twelve hundred, I was doing like ten hours a day. Four is yeah. not that much. Oh yeah, oh, wow, nice. Um, I can tell you one story. Just how much obsession is important with anything to improve. Yeah. Uh, I was going to a very competitive high school in Iran, and uh, we were studying advanced, you know, pre pre university level. Although we were like. A, Third, second year in, in high school, and uh, we had physics and chemistry and all, this, all, all all those science courses. And I'll take my chess book, the uh, the Soviet uh, was which ones that with quality chess and they have it, the Romanovsky book, mm -hmm. Soviet school or that one. And there was another one with by Mizelis, and there was another one, um, and the position Sarhan would give me, and. Mm -hmm. I'll book, open my book and I had my notes on papers and I put them there and I started reading from from that. So basically, I was the entire school time I was I was reading my chess content. Me too. <laughs> High five, David. Good. Yeah, I think that's. We uh... played, played blindfold chess with my chess club members by passing like papers. <laughs> that's 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 uh, yeah that's. That's beyond me. No, I couldn't do that. I would, I would be expelled from the class. No, I couldn't do that. I was playing blindfold in, in, in the in the breaks, but no, that would be too much. Good job, David. <laughs> That's funny. That's Actually, what I'm now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, in college I was solving tactics puzzles on my phone during the lectures. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's always going to be a thing. Um, well. Uh, Okay, let's move on to club level. So players that are like more in like the 15, 16, 1800 range. Up to 2000 maybe? Up to 2000, sure. Yeah, like they already have, you know, some openings they like. Um, they still have some opening holes, holes in calculation, you know, holes in endgame. They still have holes in my experience all over they the place. everywhere, but they already have like one or two developed strengths here or there as well as uh -huh. some weaknesses, uh -huh. maybe some things they've learned wrong along the way. <laughs> and that's the problem. Good point, David. That's that's where the problem starts because you have to fix something that has that developed heuristics around it, and that's bad heuristics, bad judgments, and you have to fix that. Like one of the things we have problem with, you know, you start, the kids start, and you have to give them value of the pieces, but the value of the pieces is is rel is uh, relative. Mm -hmm. It changes mm -hmm. by the time, changes by the position. We know it now. It is with analyzing, especially if you use Lila at our level. And higher, there are positions that Lila just says, 
plus three and look at the position and if you let the engine starfish runs on a high depth you see it's plus three but it's simply a piece down for a pawn and it looks like to me it looks like initiative but it stays all the way through and you, the initiative is decisive mm -hmm. and uh, i understand that that the piece sacrifice is fully justified but if you want to explain the same thing to an 1800 because they were told all along count the material that's the very first thing that you to tell them you condition them to do the math right yeah they have a hard time departing from that and playing for initiative that's one of the hardest things to teach to an 1800 for example mm -hmm. yeah especially yeah if they don't have that concrete combination that they're winning something yeah then they they have to be down material for a while um do you have any favorite ways of, of teaching that do you typically like show examples do you focus on game analysis like here are moments where you could have sacrificed but but didn't how do you approach that yeah i i have i have my own database of positions and i keep updating them mm -hmm. i do a lot of research and i read books too i mean i don't i i, I don't try to reinvent the wheel so if I see a position on chess.com as I'm solving tactics and I find it interesting, or if I some I see some some somebody's posted some some article or on chess24 or I don't know some other places, wherever I see something, if I see it's interesting or in a book, I'll add it to my curriculum. I'm not saying that I wouldn't look at other sources, but I also look into the games and I develop my own uh, curriculum. Mm -hmm. And okay, people always want to know: Do you think people spend too much time on openings at this level? Because that's always the debate, you know. Because there's at, at the eighteen hundred level, yeah. It's it's a very difficult question to answer. I, I I'm not sure because a lot plays a great uh, role in players suddenly jumping to twenty two hundred. I've had people with eighteen hundred with right openings they jump to twenty two hundred, but it was because the opening trick was working out. So on one hand you can say, oh great, we're spending time on opening worked out, but then they stagnate. Yeah. And there are some people who improve at chess, but because of their overly solid openings, they have a very incremental slow growth at that level. And you know, they want to get there, for example, their kids, they, they will go to college very, very soon, and they want to improve. So there's always this trade off, which is putting me in a very hard position to say how much opening is enough. Mm. So in, in general, um, like, you know, if you're, you mentioned wanting to give your student like a solid repertoire. If if they don't necessarily have something, are you looking for like giving them the main lines, or do you try to find just lines that will work for like the specific student, for example? I always I always adapt to what what makes them feel comfortable. Because mm -hmm. at that level, you have to feel comfortable, always. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's what I found as well. I feel like. Most coaches yeah. eventually kind of settle on, on this. I I have a, if they don't have any repertoire, I offer them something. Then I adjust based on, for example, I offer a certain line against prick, for example, and and it works for some and it doesn't work. And if it, and, and some line, for example, against Caracon and some line, for example, against French. And let's say for eighty percent, there's a correlation that they all like the French and Caro, but they don't like the, the answer against the prick. So I have to adapt. I do. I have to adjust. I have to give them something different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have, I I offer them as as uh, a certain uh, repertoire, but uh, if I have to adjust, I'll see what they need, and based on that, I'll adjust. But that's when they don't have any repertoire of their own, and they just come to me for a repertoire. Right, right, right. Um, okay, and then how about the pro level? Like, you know, let's uh, say... Absolutely an animal. <laughs> yeah. What if, like, you know, a right, strong player comes to you, they want to prep for some tournament in six months? Okay, six months. Okay, my only experience in the highest level, I mean, not as a player, but as a coach, is that I was the coach of US team last year at, at the world, world team. Hmm. So I had to coach a number of 2650 players. Mm -hmm. So... Um, my work was starting at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, we would decide the lineup uh, line at, at night, and then I would wake up 4.30 in the morning. Everybody would tell me what they, they were looking to look into. So I woke up 4.30 in the morning. 
uh, at that time, I didn't have access to a good computer, so I was using the cloud on Chessbase. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll work until 7. I was the first, uh, maybe 6.50, 6.50, yeah, I would say. I, I was the first guy at the breakfast, always. Uh, I'll have my breakfast, go back, and probably by 9.30, I'll start meeting the players. So I'll share my analysis with them. Uh, it should be very in-depth and hardcore, really. But you have to have explanations. If it's an equal position, engine says zero, but you have to argue in favor of the position if you believe that's the kind of position they have to enter. So you would um, you would look up openings for all, all four players that are playing? And then... Not four, for the most part. Some some didn't need my help. So I would say three. Mm -hmm. Wow. Sometimes even two. Sometimes for example, they know, oh, I have had this analysis and this guy plays it and I'm going to play it. So good luck. I mean, good for me. I didn't have to do right. that work. But most of the time it was about three. And have you ever coached um, like young kids at like an international tournament? Uh, anything like that? Yeah. Um, uh, oh yeah, weren't we? Weren't we in working together at some point and drawing a total? No, total I was blank. I was master at Pan Am, but Pan Am is uh, relatively easy ride because uh, kids have their repertoires, they have their coaches, so you just just make making sure that they stay on track. Right. 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 So I was also at the uh, world uh, world youth. It was, but also I had also some administrative jobs to do, so it was a little bit of a stretch. But uh, I still did the, uh, the coaching part. And what's it like when you see your line being played on the board in like an important game? Then, then you start having this thought that what if what if things doesn't go our way? Then <laughs> you have this worry. No, no, not the line is wrong. I'm usually very careful about not making mistakes about the choice. But the thing is that what if it's not good enough and the guy gets the position that is okay, but somehow it gets screwed up. But once it worked out in last year in China, uh, uh, Linderman got what we worked on. He equalized, but then I think we. The guy played another move that I didn't, I have not analyzed, and then it was still equal, but Lunderman didn't know, and he got into a worse position. I was like, all that five hours, and then two hours with Lunderman himself, and some work he has put into it. But okay, okay later on the guy blundered, and he won. He won the match against China. Hmm. So, but that 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 thinking, yeah, it, it really gets into you. Yeah, I can. Um, I imagine yeah, it's just nerve wracking. Uh, and like a player at like Kostya's level or my level, if we were going to like train, would you tell us to work on everything because we have to build up our knowledge everywhere? Or would you target weaknesses? End game, or... end game openings, probably. Okay. Hmm. End game openings, probably. That's what I would do. Yeah. Um, actually, well, this kind of leads us into our next topic, um, which uh, we'll move on to here. Alshon, what do you think is the, the value of like having someone with you in person helping you at a tournament versus working like remotely through Skype or something? Do you it, have any thoughts on uh, that? It all comes down to how, how attached that player is to the coach. I think it's more of an emotional, psychological thing than because the chess is the same. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's even more much easier to do it online. But I, I have students who have been working with me for six years, getting from 1500 to 2200. So there is an emotional attachment to the coach. They see they see him as a person who really care for them, help them to get there. So if I'm there for them, it, it will help them better. Oh, I see. So it I think the chess part doesn't make a difference, but the psychology, the the presence, the support. Uh, and and I, I can say that about myself. When I was when I was doing my MBA, we had this class about personal leadership. And for example, uh, and then you take a test and it tells you about your personality. I am a one-on-one -on -one person. I am, I have a very good leadership and I had the, I had the highest score on that one-on-one. -on -one. So if I have to manage a small team, I'll be successful, but I cannot manage maybe as good as a group of 20. But if I have a small team, I can be more successful because I can have, uh, I can dedicate the time and energy to them, to them. So that works for me like that. So. If it's one person, probably it's better in person if I am, I am there. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it differs from coach to coach and the way they are doing it. I think everyone will have a different answer to that. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense that it's kind of based on the um, just the interpersonal uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've 
I've uh, I've not got a lot of experience with mints with seconds, either on either side of it. But I think that if somebody's there with you, it's it's easier to be there like all the time, right? Like you can talk about about like your opponent's profile during lunch or during dinner the day before, right? If if your coach isn't there with you, there's just no way to get that same amount of sort of like contact and focus um, in addition to what you said, the sort of emotional touchstone. So, yeah, I, I did think something like that myself. You're, you're right about that. Yeah. But also, it depends on the, on, on the player's personality. I myself don't want to think about my opponent until the day of the game. Like, I mean, I will think, of, think about the opening. But when I think about him, then I become fussy in my choices. I, I'm talking about myself. Someone else is different. Someone else that constant talking helps them to come up with a better plan. So again, I think that could vary from personality to personality. Yeah. And, and, that's then, a and then I've talked to, um, to Sam Shanklin about this once, and he said there's a very strong advantage to having your second be in a different time zone where it's daytime for them when it's nighttime for you so that you know they can get the pairings and then you go to sleep and they work the whole time you sleep and then you get up in the morning and they brief you they uh, that's actually true because that was basically so my different time zone was that i was waking up three hours earlier so i was so you were I, basically creating yeah. yeah i was creating that yeah so yeah. i i go there i'm meeting i don't know sam sabian or lenderman or or darius schwartz and then okay guys this is what i've done Mm-hmm. So, I'm there. I'm giving them some ideas, some advice, or whatever I look, I've looked at. Yeah, that is a yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, and Sam said then the second should like sleep during the game. <laughs> that's when they should be asleep. <laughs> actually, that's what I was doing. Yeah. So I was taking a couple of hours uh, nap, then I will wake up, then I'll try to look into some more games, a little bit, maybe rest just myself. I don't know, read some book, something just to distract myself. Then we will decide yeah, the team lineup they'll create that condition yeah so john would announce the team lineup around 10 10 latest 10 30 and i'll go to bed right away i would just tell them to email me whatever you have and i'll wake up 4 30 so six hours of sleep i'll work mm -hmm. and then yeah that's cool i think that's how they did it with, with uh, team magnus as well um like they would be in i think thailand it was and yeah just completely different time zone and um Right, working during the day in a tropical climate, and and uh, yeah, getting to sleep during during the games. No, it makes sense. I, I guess yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about. Like that could be a possible value of working remotely. But to me, it, yeah, it does make sense. Like in person, it's always just like I think it's a little bit easier and you get more done. Um, that's it. I remember Elshon, you were helping me once when I was overseas at the uh, Isle of Man, and um, mm -hmm. and once in St. Louis as well. And you were just giving me like some basic advice before each game. Uh, I yeah. actually think the you know the profile of the opponent is a little bit underrated. I don't think it's all about the opening. Uh, I remember for one game, I don't I don't want to mention the player, but we um you know, you you looked at their games and you're like, yeah, they're not that good against like Catalan or like Fianchetto setups. And at the time I was kind of, you know, playing Fianchetto stuff sometimes, otherwise uh, playing other stuff. And yeah, in this game I decided, well, let's let's do the Fianchetto and it turned out well. So that one like kind of judgment, like this player doesn't like this kind of position or this kind of position, can be, I think, just as useful as a novelty or something like that. Good, good point. Good point. I had two coaches who were very good, and they coached me during the tournament. Were very good at that. Short and Anishak. Mm. They will look at the guy, and they would. I mean, that's why they're also very good players, right? Both of them. I mean, great players. Uh, so that's that's one that uh, though, with these two players I had uh, great experience in that in that term. So maybe for example, if you wanted to make a difference between being a chess instructor and a chess coach, maybe that that touch is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, like with with both of them, great experiences and great results as well. In Pan Am 15 and all the other Pan Ams we qualified and with short we won. We were an underdog, but we won the third place bronze medal in 2006 Asian Games, which is the only medal Iran ever won in uh, Asian Games. <laughs> was that and, with uh, the with the team, your your national team? team? Yeah, with the national team. Yeah. Oh, cool. With the Den, with the Den national team. <laughs> and yeah. so, 
Is that because these guys, they know everyone and they know their profile or they just, they can understand the player based on their games? That, uh, for example, one example, I am playing a Blitz match with Sasha Kiran. The winner at least secures this bronze, uh, silver medal in the Asian Indoor Games. And those events are important, you know. The Asian Olympic Games are very important for the sport, ministries, everything, and the budget that, that, that sports because chess is seen as a sport. So for the budget, the Federation could get anything. It could define every single medal counted. So I'm playing this blitz match, and he was like, oh, Shan, let's be honest, he's a stronger than you. I mean, he's a more fast 2700 player, but you should not be a fixed target. I was like, what do you mean? You should play something out of ordinary. So we prepped with a pitch gambit for a blitz game, mm -hmm. and it actually worked out. Mm -hmm. Because we entered the position, just said, he gets his two push-ups, you get a solid position, and you start making this kind of moves, like A4, this, you just put a pin on the position. Not how to say it. You put this... I would call them screws, like you just stop everything. Mm -hmm. And you just stop him, and then he will try to do something, and he would self-destruct. And that's exactly what happened. Because he is a classical player, he has white pieces, and he feels that he needs to do something, but the time is running out. He has only three minutes. He will start burning time, and he'll give you chances. That's exactly what happened. I ended up losing that match, but his strategy with black pieces paid off. Mm -hmm. I actually, only four games, I scored one and a half only with black pieces. Well, he told me to play more solid with white, and I didn't listen to him, and I lost both white and white games. <laughs> there you are. Uh, so, uh, that one example, and... Uh, but this, in 15, and when I was here in the U.S., there, I had more experience, I had more agreement with what uh, Anishuk used to tell me. And because there's more similar, there are more similarities in our styles of, of playing, I... It was easier for me to understand what he means. So, so with Anishuk, you were working with him as part of uh, the Texas Tech Texas team. Tech. Yeah. Uh, and how how many years were were you there? From twelve to sixteen. Oh, okay. And and so yeah, actually, I'm I've always want to know what's the training at the the university teams like? Is, is that like a weekly thing? Is it does it ramp up before like a big big team event? Uh, well, it was a bit different for me. I was in a PhD program. For me, the training was that I would see, I would check some openings. I'll play many blitz games against Alex, and then we will analyze them. Hmm. And it was working just fine for me. Mm -hmm. Wow. And he uh, would give you similar uh, advice to, to short, like before a game. We had other opponents. trainings too. Sorry to interrupt. We mm -hmm. had other trainings too. We had positions, you know, some some of the Dabrowski stuff, you know, the regular things everybody does. For me, what was helping most is was this analysis we were doing, trying to understand the position. And he, he has a very deep understanding of certain positions, and uh, making sure that he achieved that kind of positions. That's very that's that was the biggest lesson actually. He could he could lead the position. He could choose the lines he wants, not about what the engine message is, but what is good for me. Uh -huh. And getting those kind of positions and playing at like a 2700 level. Wow. And that was a very interesting approach. Yeah, that's interesting. That was a big lesson. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Huh. So you were asking something. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. no. Um, yeah, I was wondering if, um, right, he would give you similar advice against certain players, like how to. Was it more about getting the positions that you were comfortable in, or did you ever like target opponents, you know, in any specific way? Um. In Panams, you don't have as much time. Mm -hmm. So, wasn't practical to do that as much. But one thing I think it, it would stand out for our team was that we always had a camp before the panel, and that was our key to success. Some physical training, some getting together, some working on some openings, and we always do a three to five days to a week camp before. Mm -hmm. Getting together that that makes sense. I feel like that always just seems so fun. Doing a little training camp before an event, getting in shape. Um, interesting. Okay, let's uh, maybe we can go into the next topic here. Um, kind of going off uh, a little bit different direction, but it could be interesting to talk about. Uh, what are the current opening trends for the three different levels? Kind of like beginner, club, and and pro level. Anything Ooh. you've noticed? Yeah, that's. I cannot say for the club, but I think uh, they are shifting toward uh, in-depth main lines, like in uh, openings, 
um, not mainline stock. I think the most principal openings are trending for players between 1800 to 2400 at that range. Mm. A lot of Sicilian, a lot of E45, a lot of King's Indian, Les Grunfeld, um, a lot of Queen's Gambit. Am I right, David? You think you agree with me? Yeah, that sounds reasonable. You know better than me, but so far that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's what I see. I think that's what when I when I still play, I see that's the most uh, I have to face and I have to prepare against. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. in the highest level, I've been yeah. seeing more and more E forty five in general. Um, I think I think that's sort of gone up in popularity a bit. You mean in that range of 1800 to 25 or only the top level? Yeah, yeah, because I think like before, you know, I think the Sicilian's always been considerably more popular than the E5 in the past. And now, I don't know, it might be 50-50 or, or so between those two. That, well, the thing is that I, I still have, I still look at the games of players 2200, 2400. I only look at my students' games who are 1800 to 2200. So my judgment will not be as uh, I will not represent the right correct statistics because I, I don't see as much games of the 1800 to 2200s yeah but um, you might be right actually in, yeah. in I would say it's 50 50 in that level of 20 2400 and plenty 45 and uh, and uh, Sicilian against yeah. e4 I see a lot of Kings Indian and a lot of Queens Gambit yeah Hmm. Now, do you um do you do much work with Leela nowadays? Um, not as much as I used to. I I, I look at Leela uh, exclusively to find uh, candidate moves because uh, you know for it to give you a very thorough calculation and and direct line like very concrete lines, it takes a long time with Leela. No matter how good your computer is, so hmm. I just look at Leela and Fat Fritz for candidate moves. And certain lines, and then I check it with the the newest stockfish. So Lila, and then and then the latest stockfish. Uh, yes, please. got gotcha. And um, you said, I mean, it, it, does that mean you were doing it more before? You're saying not so much uh, lately. Using Lila, yeah. I was relying on the lines. It was suggesting, and uh, I was taking the evaluation seriously. I still take it seriously, but not as much because stockfish kind of. Accuracy overrules uh, concepts and ideas. Uh huh. Sad. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I guess, I guess I hear that a lot now that uh, uh, players just using both basically to to and double I play check. Card finals, just I can be a little bit biased. So, I mean, I, I I don't. It's not a joy, but I like analyzing. So I thought I can just try some lines, you know. And you know, some other guy is basically doing the job for me, half of the job, <laughs> <laughs> by playing a correspondence game. So. Yeah, if I only rely on Lila, I probably will just lose another 300 points in mm. correspondence. So have you I played have much correspondence? Not much, and once I got flagged, I forgot to make a move with white pieces in, in, a, in a dead drawn uh, Berlin against Shikiran. So uh, I should be like, I lost that game, and, and because it was my first rating, I lost some rating, but I'm like 24-5, but I should be 24-25. I mean, not to be. Oh, wow. That's my level. Do do a lot of GMs play? You said uh, it was Sasha Kiran you're playing against. Sasha Kiran plays uh, Dutch. There are, I see many Dutch GMs. I don't know US GMs much oh. in the involved with it. Yeah. I I just play to kind of test my openings. I don't care about the winning world. I mean, I haven't won any games actually. I have, I have like, fifteen draws or something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and that one game, I just got flagged. Right. No, so, but once it, the depth goes to depth 67, 70, it just becomes unreal. You can just check my some of the games I've played; it's just very unreal. Uh-huh. There's it loses practicality. I mean, after after a certain point, it becomes so complex that I lose interest in that game. I just want to finish the game fast. So if I see a forced draw, I just pick it up. I don't try to kind of linger and make the make the game going. Hmm. As, as long as it's strategically interesting for me, I, I I want the game stays complex. But once the complexity exceeds my understanding, I mean, goes beyond my understanding of chess, then I just look for some forced line to make a draw. Yeah, it's so 
it's so deep. I don't even understand how anyone wins a game anymore at, at this level. <laughs> Seven, Kostya, sixty-seven. But the, they're both at sixty-seven. <laughs> That's like the whole game if you've already played the opening. Yeah, yeah, and you play twenty, you play fifty moves theory, and you just begin to explore other options already. Right. So yeah, it's it's a. I've, I'm more inter- I'm interested in the game until move twenty, and then I'm just like, okay, this is beyond me, and the engine shows zero, and I don't understand why it shows zero. So let's just move on. Just let's. Find the I don't know fourth draw or perpetual or something. I lose interest. Yeah. Well. Um, but do you find that it helps your your regular games to explore the openings that deeply? Like, do you do you pick up ideas that you can use later? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, the reason I don't have a job is that I love chess, and <laughs> the more I see and I, I learn, it just makes me feel good. Yeah. So any parents out there, depending on whether you want your kids to feel good or to have a job. <laughs> introduce them to chess or don't I have two master's degree I was just telling you I just have two master's degree I did my education yeah. <laughs> nice um, well classic question you know for beginners who don't really know a lot of openings do you recommend that people learn something simple like you know London system or you know just take the bullet play e4 and just try to get better at those positions David, what do you think? I, w- I would love to know your opinion first on this one. My opinion, I usually, well, I mean, I let my students pick on openings usually, but usually I make them play a whole bunch of different openings, even from a from a from an early point. Like I'll make them play, but sequentially, not all like at the same time. Not like, you know, one game the French, the next game the car, the next game the Aliens defense or something. But I'll be like, for the next two months play E4, and then for the next two months play D4, and for the next two months. Well, I mean, I consider like D4 with C4 or D4 with, you know, without C4 as two different ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now for two months, play the English. Now for two months, play the Grunfeld. And just have them like go around and really get a breadth of experience with different types of positions. Mm-hmm. I, I would say I do it in a different way. What, what I do is that I try to have them, if they are playing D4 or E4, or whatever they choose to play, I'm okay. But I just want to make sure they play the most number of different pawn structures mm-hmm. so for example in my opinion london doesn't offer that many pawn structures you get reverse queen's gambit mm-hmm. and uh, you get the square setup which you can call a reverse slot and that's that's all you get sometimes you can get queen's gambit from white side if you go c4 right so yeah. that will restrict your pawn structures so i would suggest if they go d4 play d4 c4 and not try maybe nimzo with f3 nimzo with e3 see different Fluid, I'd say more sharper pawn structures. See these mm-hmm. hanging pawns and IQP, and just see it, you know, experience it. But people are becoming more result oriented. So once they want it, then you have to show it to them. They just don't want their pawn structure to be loose or I don't know. So people are becoming more uh, reserved about their pawn structure. They want it solid. They want to know where the pieces belong to. So you see less people are interested in playing IQPs or or hanging pawns. But I would suggest for someone to develop a good sense of game, game of chess to play openings that offers them as many pawn structures as possible. Yeah. So they can get better. I mean, pretty I much the same. At the base, we agree then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I think um, variety is important. And especially not shying away from sharp positions, I think, is important. Um, cause then I think a lot of players have a hard time then overcoming and, and trying to play something new. And when they are used to this comfort zone of the, like the London or something like that, I would just prefer no comfort zone. Just, <laughs> you're always just trying to play, uh, ambitious lines and, and maximize your, uh, your chances. Um, I mean, when you start out playing, everything's confusing at first, right? For like a, like a beginning player, it doesn't matter what opening we're playing that we look at and we recognize it, they look at the board and it's just like they don't know what's going on, right? There's just pieces going all over the place. So they don't have a comfort zone at first. And I think I think you never want, I mean, yeah, I think you don't want to like show them how to build a comfort zone because then they'll, they'll never want to come out. So just <laughs> at first they'll accept that it's chaotic and they don't know what's going on. So they'll be fine playing whatever opening. And I think you just want to run with that. And, and you should help players to 
to get comfortable with the idea of losing a game and come back and play again. Mm-hmm. Because to deal with that tough skin, I, I have that problem myself. Rebound is, is one of my weaknesses to, to get to a higher level in chess. That was one of my weaknesses. So if they get comfortable of, okay, I lost this game, I can come back and play another, another, another sharp game, that helps building character too. I believe so. Yeah, you need the confidence, right? To just play play dynamic, even though yeah, you lost your last two games or whatever. I can share a very important experience of mine, how I became wow. a GM. So 1997, World uh, world Youth, okay, under 12, I'm representing Iran, lost the first two games. And specifically from white side, I just lost without a fight. So the coach said, look, this, you're, you suck at D4-C4, let's play uh, Tour and London. I, I won all of my rest of, rest of the games in the tournament, and I was hooked. I was, this is it, my comfort zone. All the way to become a GM. I hardly would play some E4 games, some C4 games, but main opening, that. Then I stagnated for two years until I changed my openings. Hmm. I, I always had a hard time playing sharp games as, as a GM. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, and because as black, I was playing Sicilian, I, I'm more comfortable playing sharp games from black side than from white side. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I was playing Sicilian all the time. Right, and, and skipping the Queen's Gambit. Yeah, I, I was playing King's Indian with black and uh, and uh, and Sicilian. So I, I basically scored my norms and points with black pieces. <laughs> no, I mean, really, my norm, my norm is all of the crucial games are black queens. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that's funny. So I've got King's Indian defense players who sometimes ask me, like, if they can just play the King's Indian attack as white and, like, do the same thing that they that they do in their black games. So that's the problem. People don't understand that they're different pawn structures. They're completely different ideas, in my opinion. Well, there you go. What do you think? What do you think? Um, I don't really know. I don't really know. I haven't played much King's Indian defense or King's Indian attacks, so... There are different openings. They are completely different, in my opinion. Yeah. If your opponent goes e5, yeah, I can still reverse King's Indian, but King's Indian attack with pawn on e6 is a completely different opening. Right. So yeah. if they play a reverse... And the thing is that at some point, e4 is not possible. So sometimes you must go c4, so you have to be open to... You may have the King's Indian setup, but you may go C4, you may go E4, sometimes it's a reverse Benoni, sometimes you have to... Different stories. Again, it all boils down to pawn structures. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Cool. My humble opinion. Um, no, that makes sense. Uh, okay, let's go on to the last question. This is kind of a two-part question. <laughs> um, first part, what was it like to coach Kostya? Like I mentioned, Alshon helped me uh, get that final I am norm and, and get to over uh, 2400 and then second part what does Costa have to do to get to GM okay um, that helping you to get I am was in my opinion walking the park because your main <laughs> problem was evaluation oh. and we managed to fix it to a good extent uh, I think I showed you my nine imbalances about evaluation and you did pretty good in the class and you did the homeworks I gave you and I was confident you would score. I didn't know that it's going to happen this fast, but I was confident that because your main problem at that level was, and the things you were playing was evaluation. You you had problem with overestimating your positions. So with with few games, I could immediately tell what you need to do. Mm. So in case in terms of working, I actually ended up working out. It was a walk in the park. Oh. Now getting to the GM title. Okay, that is a million dollar question. <laughs> Because everyone has his own, his own path, so uh, and I'm not trying to sell the title overly. Like I'm mean, just say it's it's too difficult because you know because I'm a GM and, and others are not. But the thing is that uh, psychology plays a very big role. I think you really have to pick up on practical decisions. Mm. I play blitz in in on in many tournaments on chess.com, blitzes everywhere, and play different players. And uh, I see my evaluation is pretty good and I can outplay, but then sometimes my opponent makes this weird move, which I do not consider at all. And it just changes the dynamic of the game. And the trend is still in my favor, but it's not exactly the same clear path I was going through. And then 
they can end up flipping the game or winning or drawing. Okay, it's a blitz, but still, or even in the longer time control. Like I don't really just get gradually outplayed, but they just there are these critical moments that my opponents sometimes come up with the with the move that just changes the dynamic of the game. Right. And you really have to get good at that. And your opponents needs to needs to be more solid. And uh, when I say solid, meaning that you have to know more in depth what you play these days. Mm. Sadly, that's a fact. In my time, it wasn't as as hard in 2005, but that's ancient time for a lot of your listeners, <laughs> audience. That's only ancient time. But um, yeah, opening is is very important, and and uh, be physically prepared. I learned that from Anishuk. Mm. Also, being is like an Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but he, he he's uh yeah, he's in good control of uh his uh his energy during the game. Mm-hmm. How to budget it. Like So Elshon, did you know that Kostya has a problem with the Benoni of all terrible openings to not be able to beat with white? He has a real problem with the Benoni. What's what's he supposed to do about that? That's a good question. Studying it, I guess. Uh, Spending study- time being more being being more objective. The thing is that <laughs> You can, these days, you cannot even beat any opening. Like, you cannot even beat e4, e4, c5, c3, b6. I can tell you. If your opponent analyzes this with black, you cannot just go show up and just make reasonable moves and expect advantage. You cannot even beat that. I can guarantee that to you. There are correspondence games that white cannot win against this move. b6 sounds like an absolute crap, but I'm sorry for the piece <laughs> of work. But that, just, you know, people can go b6 there. Yeah, and then you just e4 c5 c3 b6, and uh, they hold. So if somebody analyzes this line, so the answer isn't d4 bishop b7 d5 with a big white advantage. No, it's not. No, it's harder than that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so once you have problem with that, that you cannot say I choose this setup against Benoni and I'm gonna go fine. I'm gonna yeah. be I'm gonna be fine. Maybe it works for you if you are Darif already. But that's like 30 years of experience in the highest level. You can do that. Well, if you are trying to become a GM, then you have to put the time, move by move, learn your ideas, make sure all the tactics are working out and you achieve the position you want to achieve. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I remember one of the most useful things you told me that I'll remember back from back then was that every like new, I think you said new IM or GM had some kind of like new approach to, not a new approach to the game but they had something new they brought to the game they didn't just copy the openings of someone and just yeah, some, use that yeah some sort of a contribution that's right. like it's like you become a professor you you know you write a thesis you mm. that's your contribution to the game Interesting. And it's becoming narrower and narrower because we have more and more theory but it's still a contribution okay and so um i can tell you what your contribution was with nimzo that line with B6 was very trendy at the time, and Kostya killed it. Wait, I did? B6 line? The D4, knight F6, C4, E6, knight C3, bishop B4, queen C2, B6. We killed it in our analysis. And now he's out of fashion. Oh. It's just a good open. <laughs> I barely remember that. I remember, yeah, prepping some 92 stuff, which was fun. Um, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I also want to contribute. Not- What's that? Everybody has his own contribution still. Mm. It's still relevant today. Nice, nice. Well, here's my contribution, Elshon. E4, E5, F4. Fantastic. E4, Knight, F3. Uh-huh. Bishop, E7. Now, in this position, normally you play Bishop, C4, so that on Bishop, H4 check, you can play King, F1. Right? Bishop, C4 is normal. You but in this one? position, I've played D4. Awesome. Bishop, H4, King, E2? Two. You know, this is not refuted. I was analyzing this like two months ago or one month ago on the high depth and looking at all the correspondence games. Actually, white can hold. Yeah. But there is a merit into this. My opponents play d5, I take. They play queen e7 check. I bring my king up to d3. Bishop f5 check, king c4. Okay, that is a little bit too far. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, because it sounds like, yeah, but, uh, but, but this holds actually bishop e7 that this works i mean there is only maybe one line that black can get a lot to play but actually there is a merit into this <laughs> awesome but i'm sure it was working better in our times than nowadays because yeah it sounds extremely risky these days yeah i'm very confused that, about that 
the position. E4, E5, F4, E takes F4, Knight F3, Bishop E7, D4, Bishop G7, Bishop H4, check King E2. Oh, sorry. I thought Black's Bishop was still on F8, so I'm like, why isn't there Queen oh, B4? Not, there's Queen checking. B4 mate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, Bishop is on H4. Okay, okay. Because normally Kosti in the Bishop E7 line, White plays Bishop C4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clear F1 for the King, and then instead of playing Bishop H4 check, Black switches to Knight F6. Because uh -huh. the bishop on c4 yeah, yeah. is not well placed against knight f6. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, but after bishop e7, I came up with the idea of playing d4 there. And apparently, Elshon says I could maybe grovel a draw in that position. <laughs> I would say, I would say with a bit of luck, but I think. <laughs> still, still, I mean. With some luck, my king can run through the center of the board with a sign like, try and get me, try and get me. <laughs> You know, it's very provocative, actually. In terms of a good, a good psychological decision, I would, I would consider it. Yeah. If you are in a must-win situation, you know, and your opponent is a super solid Berlin player, you know, imagine mm -hmm. that. That's a good choice. Yeah. Sure. I mean, he can instead of trying to see how how many moves he has memorized in Berlin, you can provoke him to beat you, especially if he's a player your own level or maybe even higher, and you need to beat that person. Yeah. If you provoke them, they enter the fight, and bam! If you have few moves and they have, they have to make tough decisions. You know, if if you are in, in a desperate winning situation, that's not a bad choice, actually. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, all right, guys. Cool. I think we'll uh, wrap it up here. Thanks, Elshan, so much for uh, joining us. This was great. A lot of interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, if you guys want to check out Elshan's new book. Uh, Sherlock's Method, which is basically like a training guide to prep for a tournament coming up, uh, like exercises, tactical, positional, decision making, um, end game, end game. Yeah, it looks like a, a really, a really interesting, uh, really interesting book to check out. I put the link in the chat. Uh, you can also email Elshan for uh, a signed copy at elshan.moradiabadi at gmail.com. And um, yeah, Alshon, are you uh, doing anything soon? Are you streaming videos, articles? Um, yeah, I, I have a few uh, ideas in mind, but stream, I don't know, but probably videos and some articles. And I have I have some book ideas in mind, but for now I have I put it uh, to rest because it was already a lot of work for this one, so. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I have a I have a very good idea. We discussed it with Sabina. We'll see if, if we would materialize the idea or not. But, it know. seems like you would be a really strong contestant on Ultimate Sensei. So maybe we can get you in there one day as we uh, run as we keep running those. I would I would love to. Sure. If if uh, if you guys I like I like challenges being challenged as a coach and uh, I I really like the job. I mean you know some part is difficult sometimes, but. Uh, I love the challenge. That'd be really cool. Sure. Um, all right, guys. Uh, we'll be wrapping it up here. We'll be back in a little bit with the uh, the streamer battle league. We have a match coming up versus Mechanics Chess uh, at 5 p.m. today Pacific time. Uh, if you guys want to play in that, all you have to do is just be here before then, and uh, you can already uh, check out the tournament links in the chat there. Make sure you're a part of our Chess.com club. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Alshan. This was this was really great. I'm sure people learned a lot. And thank will... you so much for having me. Thanks, David. It was good talking to you after a long time. Yeah. Have a great afternoon and evening, and uh, hope to see you sometime. Maybe joining the the challenge. All, All right. right. <laughs> hope All to right. have you back soon. Take All right. care, everyone. Have a great time. Take care.